to the Ortho Eval Pal podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 270 of the Ortho Eval Pal podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis, and today we're going to be talking about laser therapy and orthopedics with special guest, Dr. Mark Callinan. We're going to be talking about what laser therapy is, the mechanisms of how it works, diagnoses treated with laser therapy, and we'll talk a little bit about insurance reimbursement and so much more, but if you don't mind holding for a moment, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by MedBridge. Harnessing the power of technology to help you advance your career and improve patient outcomes, MedBridge delivers over 2,000 evidence-based CE courses and more than 7,000 specialized patient exercises available whenever you need them from wherever you are. MedBridge goes beyond CEUs. They're leading the space. From interactive webinars led by top industry leaders to the first ever HEP patient mobile app, MedBridge has taken learning to the next level for over 200,000 PTs, OTs, ATs, SLPs, and nurses, and those they serve. For a limited time, use promo code OEP to receive $175 off your annual subscription. You go into clinic every day to practice at the top of your license and provide the best care to your patients. Yet, four out of five orthopedists say that note-taking is interfering with patient care. Robin is here to change that. Robin provides ambient virtual scribing that's designed exclusively for orthopedics. Its Robin Assistant device ambiently captures your visits, so you can focus on patients, and Robin Virtual Scribes can deliver more complete clinical notes and codes to your EHR. Visit robin.co slash OEP. That's robin.co slash OEP to learn more. Welcome back. So folks, we have a loaded episode today. We have a lot to go over. And now I used to teach modalities up at a local university to uh, athletic trainers. And I know a lot about your hot packs, cold packs, ultrasounds, e-stems, iontophoresis, all that stuff. But I will be brutally honest with you. I know zero about laser therapy. And so what I did was I brought in an expert to help us today. And, um, you know, so we can understand how laser therapy works, when we would use it, when it's indicated for certain types of problems. So with me today, I have Dr. Mark Callanan. And prior to joining Chattanooga's marketing and clinical education team, Dr. Callanan treated orthopedic patients and managed therapists in an outpatient setting for 18 years. He has been board certified as an orthopedic clinical specialist by the APTA since 2003 and graduated with his transitional doctorate in physical therapy in 2007 from Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. After earning his master of physical therapy from Shenandoah University in 1999. And Dr. Callanan acquired his therapeutic laser acumen after joining Lightforce in early 2017 while serving as their director of clinical development. Lightforce, Lightforce was acquired by DJO Chattanooga in December of 2020, where he is currently serving as the Director of U.S. Marketing and Clinical Education for the DJO Recovery Sciences Division. He has made formal presentations to mixed professional audiences, both nationally and internationally, on the topic of laser therapy and has begun lecturing on the topic of shockwave therapies in 2021. Dr. Callanan is also currently serving as an adjunct professor for Belmont University's physical therapy program in Nashville, Tennessee. Mark, welcome to the show. Paul, it's quite an intro. Thanks so much. 
Well, you know, Mark and I were, we, we, you know, we were introduced to each other through a local company called MedCore Professionals and their DME companies, great group. Um, and, uh, you know, they introduced us to shockwave therapy, which we've been utilizing and having great success with. And we, we were throwing around, you know, laser therapy a little bit, or you guys were, and I was had no knowledge about what it was. And I figured, well, I'm going to start asking some questions. I want to learn a little bit more about this. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to bring you, my listeners in on this, and we're just all going to learn together. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to move the mic over uh, to Mark and uh, we'll talk about, uh, you know, laser therapy. Are you ready, Mark? Yeah. And I, I would point out before we get started that when I joined the Light Force team in 2017, uh, as pretty much a manual therapist, used very few modalities in the clinic. I didn't know anything about laser therapy. So I started from, you know, pretty much scratch. And uh, they were interested in me for my management knowledge and knowledge of the space, just being in the outpatient world for as long as I was and sort of rolled the dice on me. So uh, I spent a lot of time looking at um, different journals, talking to folks. We were up, luckily, you know, had a very, very uh, good group of folks uh, Our CEO Brian Pryor, who's a PhD and pretty much created uh, our high power laser and um, our chief technical officer, also 25, 30 years in this space, Luis de Tabata, uh, was able to pick their brains a lot. And so by basically being around smart people and reading a lot of journals uh, kind of got me where I am today on what I know about this stuff. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to jump right in. So can you tell me what high power laser is? And please tell me that it's more than just a, a complicated heating lamp. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you can describe this to us now, I know today you probably have a few pictures for us because we are going to post this on YouTube also. So uh, for those of you who want to kind of take a look at some of the visuals that Mark has, you can jump over to YouTube and check that out. But while we're going through that, for those of you who are just listening, we're going to do our very best to just describe it for you as we go. So, Mark, high power laser, what is it? Yeah, so in the in the U.S. here, the FDA basically qualifies laser based on the power output. So if you're over the average average power output is over half a watt or 500 milliwatts of power, you jump into what they call class four and class four is basically anything from half a watt and higher. So you could have a laser that put out 500 watts. It's still going to be class four. So <clears throat> we fall into the same grouping as, you know, different types of surgical lasers and things of that nature we are a therapy laser company and that's what the equipment's designed to do. But sometimes that information gets falsely put out there that, Oh, if you're using a class four laser, it's dangerous. It's going to hurt people. It's not true. It's just the, the nature of the power output has to be managed uh, by the device. And um, you know, we can get into that in a little bit, but if you go down to, you know, class three B and class two, these are devices that are much lower output on wattage milliwatts actually. And, uh, Due to the nature of the fact that they're lower power, it does not create a sensation of heat on the skin. So when you put the, the lower power lasers, which are considered cold lasers, that's a sort of a garbage term that got you know put out into the space um, a while ago. Uh, that's why they called it that is because you can put it on the surface of the skin because of the lower radiance, the lower power density that's put on the skin, you can't feel it. So uh, people will often say, are high power lasers cold lasers? And technically they're not because you will feel warmth on the skin <clears throat> as the melanin and the you know different pigments of your skin absorb the light, they will get warm because of the higher power. So <clears throat> that was sort of the initial differentiator between the two. But 
all lasers fall underneath uh, an umbrella, and I'll sh share my screen here um, to help with this, under a term called photobiomodulation. And this has been a term that's been accepted in the laser space since uh, about 2017, 2016, actually. And what it just states is that when you put light, you know, whether it's from a laser or an LED, um, that basically the body has the ability to absorb uh, that light depending on the wavelengths that are used. Um, there's different things called chromophores in your body that they're sort of the light accepting components on the cells. And as they absorb the light, it creates a change in biological function uh, and has physiological changes on the tissue. So um, to your question about, is it just a fancy heat lamp? Um, does it create heat on the skin, the high power lasers? Yes, but this is kind of the mechanism of what's going on below the skin. All right. Now, there are a lot of folks out there that are watching that are going to want to know if there's a lot of research behind this. Um, can you fill me in on, on the research that's being done around laser? Yeah. When you look in PubMed, say, and you look under laser, you're going to pull up things, you know, for different types of surgical lasers, you know, different types of lasers used on eyes and a whole bunch of use, even maybe some different um, technical type lasers. So it's very important to use the correct mesh headers when you look. So photobiomodulation is now the accepted mesh header for laser therapy. So if you put in uh, photobiomodulation and say low back pain or and shoulder pain, you're going to get the most recent uh, research. And so I just put in photobiomodulation and 3,600 papers or sites came up on uh, PubMed. And then when you put in LLLT, which is an acronym for low level laser therapy or low level light therapy, it's not quite clear on which one is used and when it is. That was the reason that photobiomodulation came about as the naming uh, accepted mesh header. Uh, that's been around for a lot longer and 8,000 plus hits came up for that. So <clears throat> if you combine those two, there's, there's over 10,000 papers that are out there on the topic of uh, therapeutic laser. And uh, the number has been growing uh, sort of like a hockey stick over the last four or five years based on um, some of the things that they're starting to find out. Nice. Great. Now, um, you know, we, we have a lot of folks who are physical therapists, occupational therapists, PT, OT assistants, athletic trainers. Uh, we even have, uh, you know, orthopedic surgeons who listen to our podcast. Can you talk a little bit about some of the diagnoses that can be treated in the realm of orthopedics? And if there are other diagnoses like, uh, you know, diabetic issues or uh, neuropathy problems and things like that, can you talk to us about some of those diagnoses that you see most often used with laser? Yeah, so the indication for most lasers that are out there, including ours, are for uh, helping with pain uh, on the musculoskeletal level, basically. So for OA, uh, muscle pain, anything that's sort of on a myofascial level um, due to the, the heating aspect and the fact that it does help address pain to come down, that's the sweet spot for uh, light force therapy lasers and um you can apply that to OA at the knee. You could apply it to a, you know, a strain in a hamstring, uh, low back pain, you know, anything that's involving, you know, a nerve that's irritable. Um, the laser has the ability to interact with that to help with that problem. So think of it as a very diffuse musculoskeletal tool um, that you can use in your clinic. Is it something that you typically use before or after you're done treatment? Like, let's say you're doing some exercise with somebody, would you prep them with laser or would you kind of finish them off with laser? Is there a preferred time during the a therapy session that would be most beneficial for them to use it? 
So I would say the more acute presentation that you're dealing with, the more you'd probably want to start with it because the laser has the ability to impact pain. Uh, the, the effect it has on peripheral nerves, C fibers for chronic pains and A delta fibers for acute pains, you can basically impact that signal that's going back to the cord uh, in almost like a true analgesic way when you get high irradiance or high dose to those nerve, uh, those afferent nerves. So that's why it's an effective tool for both acute and chronic problems. But if you treat, say, a shoulder, you know, that's that's really guarded, and you use the laser first, you might find that you pick up quite a bit of range of motion or decrease pain when you're doing your, your range of motion work with that person because of its ability to impact that pain. It's worth reemphasizing that in order for that to happen, you need to have high irradiance or high power because if you have, uh, if you're below the threshold to create these changes in these afferents, um, then you won't get that quick change. With lower power dosing, you generally can get impacts on pain via its mechanisms to impact the inflammatory cascade uh, and better blood flow to the area, um, which will impact mediators such as bradykinins, things of that nature that will impact pain. Uh, so it's not uncommon, even if you're using a low power laser, that within a day or two, the person comes back and says, hey, I'm feeling better. That's kind of that mechanism. But for that quick change, if you had a high power device in your clinic, I would want to use it early. Uh, but there's also an argument at the end, say you had somebody who was more of an, on the chronic side of things and you worked them out pretty hard. You did a lot of manual therapy and you want to try to maybe get it so that they're not as sore uh, because of the increased blood flow that the laser creates. If you did it at the end of treatment, the chances are they're probably not going to be as sore the next day. Um, you know, our devices are used in Major League Baseball a lot to help control DOMS. So yeah. what they're doing with their throwers is they treat before they throw. And that helps address the, the sort of the fatigue characteristics of muscles. They've done some great work on this uh, at the University of Florida and the University of Tennessee, looking at how it impacts that. Um, but basically, you know, DOMS is a two-headed dragon. It's got your mechanical problem and then the chemical uh, problem after the event. So if you can get better conditioning of the muscle and get less shearing on those actin-myosin interfaces, you're going to get less cause of inflammation. So the, the the trainers that are really on top of it that use our stuff, they're hitting the, the thrower's shoulders a couple hours before they pitch. And then they treat them again after they throw. And that helps address blood flow and get better repair from uh, the chemical aspect of DOMS that takes place. So for that, in, in those instances, they're using it, I guess you could say before and after, but the, the, the rationale is that it's still helping control um, some of those pain characteristics that are associated with DOMS and, and it works great. Sure. Now, when a patient comes in and um, you want to introduce them to laser, you want to do some treatment with them, how do you explain it to them how it works in a, in a layman's term? Now, you know, when we used to use a lot of uh, you know, ultrasound and things like that, we talked about how the mechanism works, but we, we can kind of like make an analogy to something else that makes it easy for them to understand. Is there anything that you utilize with patients that makes it a little easier for them to not buy into it, but feel comfortable having it because if somebody came to me and I'd never had it before. Um, I'd be a little skeptical, maybe a little afraid, you know, you want to use laser on me. I mean, um, I'd like to understand that why and how it's going to help me. How, how do you kind of present it to patients who are getting it for the first time? Yeah, that's a great point. Because when you mention laser to the average person, they they might envision Luke Skywalker's lightsaber, you know, or lasers coming out of a spaceship that are blowing up things. Um, and you have to sort of uh, back them off of that mental cliff. So saying, hey, this is a, a modality that's been around. Um, it was FDA approved in the 80s, basically in the U.S. So it's been around for a long time. 
the science started in the 60s on, on this whole thing. So it's been around a long time, but it's a non-invasive, non-pharmaceutical way to address pain. So we can put this light on you. It's going to feel warm, not going to hurt. It's going to feel comfortable and soothing, actually. And when we're done with the treatment, likely you're going to have less pain and you're going to move better. So it'll make my life easier. I won't have to push as hard on you. I won't have to do as, as, as much, you know, grunting type of stretching and things of that nature when we do your treatment. Um, so it should make everything a lot easier. And it's going to help things, you know, move along because of the increased circulation. It provides tissue. You're going to heal quicker. Uh, and basically, that concept is is why our devices are adopted in pro sports and college sports so well. So it helps with the recovery process and getting people ready to get back on the court sooner than they would otherwise. So, yep. you know, sometimes if, if you're treating, say, an ankle, you know, somebody comes in with a sprained ankle and you're in APTA in 2021 added laser as a recommended tool to use on it on acute ankle sprains for pain uh, and improving mobility uh, as, as a modality choice. So it's clinically supported from JOSPT. Um, but, you know, I, I would tell them, say, have you ever watched a, you know, a pro athlete go down with a sprained ankle and you see them, they're playing again in like four or five days, you know, have you ever wondered how that happens? And using technology, you know, part, there's several that are probably involved, but one of them is most likely laser helps bring things back, you know, to homeostasis a lot faster. So if you don't use that stuff, you're probably going to get better eventually, <clears throat> but it might be a lot longer. So it's time is money, you know, and when you have a patient in front of you, you're trying to ask them as much as they probably like seeing you, like coming to your center with your friendly staff and what have you, they would probably rather not be there. So when you can paint that picture like, hey, this is going to help save you time and effort because you won't have to come as much because you're going to get better probably sooner than you would if you didn't use this. Um, it'll save you on copay. It'll save you on, you know, just transportation costs and time from work and babysitters and all that stuff. From a convenience standpoint, often people are very attracted to it. Yeah. Now, I know some of you out there are going to be saying, wow, this guy is really old. He doesn't know. I like talking about me, that is. Um, how do, How is laser? You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're very experienced as well. We're going to That's we're right. Out there. And uh, so, uh, and wiser. And uh, so, um, what I... You know how do how is it applied to the person? Do you um is, is it like a disc? Is it like a flashlight? Is it like a wand like you would um, utilize with an ultrasound? How does it get applied to the patient? And how do you know what kind of dose to use? Is it does it vary with the diagnosis or the chronicity or acuteness of the diagnosis? Can you explain that a little bit about the physical use of the laser? Yeah, a couple things to unpack there. So the actual device, most lasers, especially the higher power ones, there's a box, you know, a chassis that has the diodes in them, which are solid state, you know, components that basically create the laser. Then those are basically focused. They go into a, a fiber optic cable that goes out to a handpiece, which then is what applies the light to the surface. So the handpiece is a very important piece of the discussion because uh, it will dictate the uh, the dispersion angle of that light that comes out. If you think about it in terms of if you had a, a laser sight on a rifle, you know, the dispersion angle on that is pretty much zero because they want that dot when you point it hundreds of yards away to be the same size as if you point it on something that's 10 feet away. So by the purpose of that, it'd be the same if you had a laser pointer, you know, the dispersion angle on that is zero because you want to be able to keep that little spot when you're looking at things, you know, from far away. Sure. From a therapy standpoint, 
that would be very dangerous to do if you had a dispersion angle of zero on your laser, because if it were to get too hot, one of the remedies is that people can move the, the handpiece up away from the surface. And if you have a dispersion angle, say 40, 45 degrees, as you pull it further away, the spot will grow and the intensity of the heat in that spot will go down. So from a safety standpoint, almost every therapy laser has a dispersed beam for that reason. Um, there are other mechanisms that you can utilize to control heat on the surface, uh, like pulsing uh, or the speed that you move it back and forth. Like for Light Force, our newest smart hand piece, it basically has an accelerometer in it and it will measure how quickly you move it back and forth. And we know based on our research that if you keep it going, two to three inches per second, it's going to be very comfortable with uh, the correct uh, unit on the handpiece, the head that you're using. Uh, and so it'll actually tell you the light will be green when you're doing it right. And if you go too slow, it gets red and it'll vibrate, which lets you know, hey, speed up a little bit. And if you go too fast, uh, it'll get yellow until you slow down because you want it to have enough time to scan the area and go back and forth and get enough photons to the scene to, to make a change. So there are lower power devices that are out there that uh, sometimes are just a single handheld unit. You'll see those and um, you'll see those in the clinic. They don't have the same problem with heat. As you produce more power um, and you have multiple diodes, it creates a lot more heat. That's the one thing for the laser, not just in the handpiece on the skin, but in the actual box where the magic is happening to create the energy that goes into the handpiece. So we've, you know, spent a lot of time in our R&D to make sure that that thing stays cool. And so as a result, you can turn the machine on in the morning and you can use it all day long on patients and turn it off at night and it's going to function really well. There are some products out there that have been sort of converted from, say, a dental laser and tried to make it more of a therapy laser. And they have a very small chassis, small box. They don't have as robust a cooling system. And what happens is that in the mouth, because the tissues you're addressing are very superficial, they're usually a pulsed beam and it's low power because you don't need a lot of that to address the gums and things of that nature. And they work great. But when you're dealing with, say, a hip or a back or a larger area, you have to generally use the device a lot longer. Uh, you may want to be using higher powers for that because of the treatment times involved and getting a radiance at depth. <clears throat> so what they found is, or what we've seen over the years, um, hearing from different customers, is that when they try to use those devices for longer periods of time, they tend to overheat. So uh, if you guys are out there shopping around looking for something, definitely want to keep that in mind as far as just the heat aspect. And you want to ask the person, hey, how how long can I use your device before you don't need to take a break? Um, and that answer might be very different from device to device, depending on what you hear. But um, yeah, the, and the global answer is they come in different forms and different shapes. Power will generally dictate a box with a cable and a handpiece. And then uh, there are certain devices that are now starting to get into, you know, unattended deals where they'll have a mechanical arm and then they'll have the headpiece at the end that'll basically pulse and maybe move back and forth. Um, but they generally do that at lower power uh, to control heat and be safe. <clears throat> so it's just a question of um, understanding what you're trying to get done and, and what you're trying to get out of your device so you get the right one. Sure, sure. Any any uh, problems with you know burns, like a sunburn type of thing, or what are what are some of the contraindications to utilizing laser? Yeah, so knowledge is a good thing. Uh, you know, our devices are used for about a million and a half treatments a month around the globe. Um, we've never had a serious uh, report of injury. Um, the the couple that have had some uh, skin, you know, injury due to due to heat 
were due to improper use. You know, one person I remember, they had put essential oils on the skin and then treated with the laser. And that obviously changed the absorption characteristics of the skin. So that person got blistered. But it wasn't because of the the device. It was that they applied something on the skin they weren't supposed to. So generally, the nice thing is if you have a patient in front of you that has normal sensation, sharp, dull, hot, cold, lateral spinal thalamic is in good shape, and it gets too hot, the patient's going to tell you, it's getting too hot, and then you're going to move it away, and everything's going to be fine. But if you do have a patient that's got a neuropathy, uh, and they have impaired hot, cold, uh, impaired sharp, dull type sensation, those are the people you want to be more careful with, not use the higher powers, use more modest powers, uh, possibly even pulse the device <clears throat> just to control for the temperature of the skin. Um, but to answer your second question about contraindications, generally, it's a very safe modality, very low risk. Um, you know, there's a list of contraindications that are on almost every modality, and they've included a lot of those with laser. It's not that there's tons of research to say if you do this, it's going to happen, but from a manufacturer standpoint, we have to be very conservative with what we recommend. So uh, growth plates with children, you know, they, they recommend not treating over those. So that's the distal ends, the long bones, hands, feet, you would probably not want to treat with a, uh, a younger person. Um, we, we get asked frequently with like Sievers or uh, Osgood Schlatter's, which is directly over a, a growth plate. You wouldn't want to treat that with the laser for that reason. You could treat around the space, um, but not directly over that where you visualize that growth plate. Mm-hmm. Um, pregnant women, you wouldn't want to treat over the belly, low back or SI area. Uh, again, there's never been a study that said hey, it's going to impact your fetus, but, uh, I don't think too many people are going to sign up for that study. No, <laughs> so right, exactly. it's sort of a common sense one, uh, just yep. to stay away from, uh, a known cancerous tumor. So if you had a, a melanoma on the skin, you wouldn't want to treat over that. Um, when you start talking about treating for post-cancer, uh, lymphedema, things like that, that's a different animal. Uh, and that's a discussion with the oncologist and the patient and making sure everybody's on the same page. But there are uses and studies that have shown uh, can be applied for things in that nature. Um, oral mucositis is one that happens for people that have had throat cancer and they have to get radiation. They get these really nasty red sores in the mouth. And there's actually an indication for laser for treating those um, with, with a, devices that are designed for that uh, to help with that. And it works really well. So uh, cancer is if it's a known localized Lesion, nope. If it's more of some of these other things we're talking about, that's a question for the oncologist uh, to make sure that uh, they're okay with it. But uh, that's a different, slightly different category. Uh, also, if they have a sort of a lymphoma or something that's a systemic cancer, then that, again, it gets kind of gray and um, generally would say defer to the the oncologist on that. Right. Um, short of that, though, those are the, the big ones. Uh, if patients are on photosensitizing meds. So if they're on a Medrol series uh, or antibiotics right now, this time of year in the, in the winter time where people are sicker, um, those can tend to be photosensitizing, which would mean they're more likely to get like a sunburn reaction to the laser. So you'd want to know what meds your patients are on. If you're not sure, you can do a Google search in about five seconds and put the name of the med in and just put photosensitivity and hit go. <clears throat> and it'll tell you if it is or not. Um, so if they are um, you probably want to hold on doing the laser while they're on that medicine. Um, and if they, if they say, no, I still want to try it, you know, then that's a discussion you want to have with them and let them know, Hey, your skin's a little more likely to get red. Um, and you probably want to treat with a lower power, lower radiance to minimize any chances of problems with that. Yeah. Those are, I think those are the biggies. 
Yep. Nice. Now, as a, you know, as a therapist like myself who works in a fairly busy clinic, you know, my, one of my questions would be how long does this treatment take typically? And how often do we do this treatment in regards to frequency? Um, any, any thoughts on that? Is there a big variability in regards to the time or um, is it pretty standard across the board? That's a good question. So let's go to the, uh, the video images. So for those of you that are listening, I apologize. But basically, uh, this graphic will help a little bit, and I'll try to walk through. But when you're talking about dose <clears throat> with laser, you're really talking about four categories. One is the wavelengths that are used. That's a very important uh, aspect of it. The device you use is probably going to dictate a lot of that on uh, which wavelengths are going to be utilized. So do your homework before you buy the thing. And the second will be the power density, which is a function of the power that you use and the size of the spot that's applied. So the irradiance, <laughs> excuse me, the irradiance is what that's referred to. Um, the overall joules per unit area or joules per centimeter squared, which in the literature is referred to as fluence. That is the next component. And then the last is frequency. So how many times a week, like Paul just asked. So on that last point, frequency, um, I would state the research is clear about one thing is that if you treat a couple times a week, as opposed to once a week, you'll get better results. They haven't nailed it as far as, oh, for this condition, it's this many times versus that many times. But if you stack up the papers on ones that apply the laser, say once a week versus ones that apply it two, three, five times a week or more. Uh, the ones that have multiple treatments will respond better. And it's, you're really trying to address, we didn't get into the mechanisms and what have you, but um, you're trying to address mitochondrial activity. <clears throat> so think of it as like you have a battery in a car that needs a jump start. Think of the laser as sort of the cables that come in and help jumpstart cellular activity um, from the, from the mitochondria essentially. And by doing so, <clears throat> it's going to help um, cells, hopefully not go into apoptosis, which is going to require them to basically be scavenged up and replaced. If you can save sort of the foundational units in the, in the cells that are around the area to not die, it's going to require less time to get the whole system back in order. So that's part of the magic there. Um, but also, you know, the fact that you're trying to stimulate activity and ATP production, if you can just kind of layer that a couple of times a week over these cells, it helps keep the pump primed up basically. So I think that's the big reason why multiple treatments work better. Generally, you know, this thing's sweet spot is in that acute, subacute window. So once tissue moves forward, and you have to understand lasers now, it does block pain. You know, so we talked about that earlier. <clears throat> but it's not like taking an, NS an NSAID where you're artificially blocking the cascade, which has negative ramifications on tissue healing as far as, you know, We've done papers uh, on hamstring strains, and when they give NSAIDs early on, their likelihood of re-injuring goes way up because it impacts, you know, the the different satellite cells and things that are laying down new uh, new collagen for those hamstring in injuries. So you don't want to interfere with that. The nice thing about the laser is it doesn't. It's just moving the process along faster. So if, you know, an acute inflammatory cycle takes five days, it might shave off you know, 20% from that, or maybe more, who knows? It depends on how healthy the person is and, you know, the, the depth of the problem and how big the problem is. <clears throat> so all those things would impact it. But uh, multiple times a week is the way to go. The next question is for 
dose when you're talking about power and how it impacts things. And that's what I put up here on the screen is that you have, if you have a known dose, which is joules per centimeter squared, and for your average, <laughs> excuse me, your average orthopedic problem, a number around 10 joules per centimeter squared is going to be a good number. So let's just use that for this example. Um, that would be like if you're trying to treat a bicep or a calf or maybe an anterior shoulder, <clears throat> this would be an appropriate dose. And then area is the next area or the next aspect you have to consider. So if you have, uh, say, the area of your flexor forearm area, and you wanted to treat from the wrist all the way up to the cubital area, you're probably looking at about 300 centimeters squared. So the palm of your hand is about 100 centimeters squared. So you can sort of estimate that if you sort of count it off on your chest or count it off on the arm to get you a ballpark. <clears throat> so if you had an area the size of the flexor surface of your forearm and you wanted to treat it at 10 joules per centimeter squared and your laser only had, say, one watt of power to put out, that treatment would take 50 minutes. So that's not very yeah. clinically uh, applicable on a day-to-day, right. -day, right? Definitely not feasible, especially in a situation like mine. Right. So, and that's the case for everybody for the most part, unless you have yeah. a very, very special practice. <laughs> um, but if you had a device that could go to three watts and the same things were true, 10 joules per centimeter squared for dose, 300 centimeters squared for area, you could reduce that treatment time to 16 minutes, just a little over 16 minutes. But if you then had a, a device that had 10 watts of power, you could do that same exact treatment in five minutes. So having higher power can really make the clinical part of app applying this uh, much better. And, and I'll warn you, like what happens to a lot of folks is that have these lower power devices. <clears throat> they go, oh, well, I don't really have 50 minutes to apply this to somebody. So what I'll do is just try to do this for five minutes or six minutes and hope for the best. And I can let you know that like the dose is real important. And a lot of the bad research that happened early on in the laser world was because of underdosing. So think of it as it's like a threshold phenomena. You have to get enough light to move the needle past that threshold. Yep. If you, uh, if you fall short of it, then nothing really happens. So those are the studies that go, eh, didn't really work. Well, the question is, did it really work or did you just not apply enough to make it work? So <clears throat> That's where having the right amount of power to get dosage in very easily uh, is important because we know in the clinic, we get busy, we're hustling, we're like, man, I think this would work for somebody, but I just don't have enough time to do, you know, 10 minutes or seven minutes. Um, but if I could maybe just do this for four or five minutes, I could do it and I think it'll help them. So I'll just try it and see what happens. Those are the type of decisions that are hard because uh, in your head, you're like, oh, I remember that guy said I need to do it for this much for that problem. But the device can make that that problem a lot less of a headache. So like our highest energy platform is a 40 watt laser. So you could provide a treatment like this. If 10 watts is in five minutes, you could do the same treatment with 40 watts in like less than two minutes. So just understand there's tools out there that can make the clinical part very easy. And I would let you know that that higher 40 watt laser with the higher irradiance, that part we talked about earlier about reaching that threshold for changing pain quickly, does it beautifully. So from that standpoint, getting that, wow, that really helped B that decreased pain is going to help you range that person or have them be able to ambulate or, or put weight on something that might otherwise be really a challenge. Um, all those things are going to factor into the impact on how it's going to, you know, address how you care for that patient that day. Sure. And, you know, on that point, the last thing I'll say is that I just had a, I was at the PPS conference out in Aurora, 
Colorado a few weeks ago and got in a pretty heated conversation with a gentleman about how these modalities impact pain and is it really helping the problem? And, uh, you know, his argument was like, if you're just masking pain and then they, you know, go do stuff and they could possibly hurt themselves or it's not really doing anything. And the point I was trying to make to him is like, look, you don't take off your clinical thinking cap because you apply laser on something and their pain is less. You still know that you're dealing with a strain or a capsulitis or a whatever that you're addressing. You still have all of that knowledge in your head as far as how long that normally takes to get them to a higher level. But it's the name of the game is what we're trying to do is to push function, push range, push things to get them back to a normal place. And my argument is like, if you can get some reduced pain, which allows them to get a normal mechanic, whether it's in a shoulder or in a, in a leg or a foot or a knee so that they're now walking better or they're ranging better. All that stuff is then going to be tempered by how you provide the exercises and the plan around it. You still, I mean, imagine if your biggest headache during your day was you had to put the brakes on your patients, right? Hey, I know you feel a ton better, but I need you to not do too much. And that is actually part of the narrative you have to have when you're using these things and you get really skilled with them because patients will think that they're healed. Oh, I feel so much better. Now I can go especially your runners. We know they can't wait to put the shoes on and put in five miles. So you have to tell them, Hey, that tissue's still on the mend. This is helping it happen a lot faster, but you still got to respect it and give this some time to come through so that we can do some other tests and make sure that you're really in a place where you can handle that kind of volume, that kind of load. Yeah, absolutely. uh, We have that chat with a lot of patients and uh, just because you're feeling better doesn't mean you're healed. And um, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. So on the first topic of wavelength, that's an important one because that's one that gets talked about a lot. And it, it's, I think it's used as a talking point to confuse the general public more than uh, to help them. But the, the mechanism for absorption, the, th- the, the molecule that gets absor- that's been studied the most when it comes to laser is cytochrome C oxidase, which is the fourth ribosome on the electron transport chain. So it's in the mitochondria. And basically that has little elements. There's actually seven different ones on this that can grab light. And so it has the ability, though, to respond to a lot of different wavelengths in this near-infrared spectrum that therapy lasers tend to live. So from about 650 to roughly 1,100 nanometers, maybe 1,200, depending on which scale you look at, that's kind of the window where therapy lasers live. And the best absorption of this cytochrome C oxidase happens in the red range, the 650, 600 range. So that's why you see tons of these devices. They're like, oh, red light, red light red light, it saves the world. And if you were trying to treat patients that lived in Petri dishes, um, you'd be right on. You'd have the right wavelength to get the best absorption from cytochrome oxidase. But what you want to understand from this graph, it's just basically showing that from 600 to 1,000 nanometers, and that was, it ended at 1,000 because that's where this device stopped measuring. Um, there's the ability to absorb light. Uh, there's a peak around 600, 650, but then it kind of flattens out as you go from 700 over towards a thousand nanometers. So anything in that range can do it. The thing to understand is that when you're dealing with humans, you have to get through the skin. And so there's melanin there, there's hair, things that grab light. So, and they also get hot. So if you use a 650 nanometer laser and that was your only wavelength and you were trying to dump a lot of power into it because you remembered, hey, higher power, I can treat faster. Probably what's going to happen with your patients is they're going to tell you that's way too hot. I can't tolerate it at the higher power because you'd be getting so much absorption of that light at the skin where you have all those sensory nerves for temperature um, that they wouldn't be able to, 
you wouldn't be able to use the higher power because it'd be uncomfortable unless you were pulsing it or doing something else. So because of that, it's not just the temperature part that would be a problem. It's a matter of light getting through the skin to get to where you want it. Cause that's the science behind this is like, how do I get light a couple centimeters into the body to have it do something? Like when you sit on the beach on a sunny day, you're getting thousands of joules of energy on your skin, but you're not creating photobiomodulation. Why? Because the wavelengths that could actually do something, there's not enough concentration of it. There's not enough irradiance to get it to where it needs to go in an adequate dose to make it happen. So you can sit on the beach for all day long. You're not going to probably impact your your arthritis in your knee <laughs> by saying, hey, I'm getting photobiomodulation. Now, are you affecting possibly psoriasis on your skin or something like that? Yes, that's a different topic, different discussion. But for getting light down below, you can't. So understand this heating effect. This is It happens because of a lot of absorption at the skin. That's what it's designed to do. Um, but the heat that takes place below the surface of the skin with therapy lasers, even the high powered ones, it's, it's minimal. Like, so once you get, you know, even half a centimeter or, or beyond into the tissue, the amount of heat is very little because the concentration of the light at that point is much lower because you've lost so much just getting past the skin. So the wavelengths that do a good job of getting past the skin and impacting the cytochrome C oxidase, that's the important thing. And so the, the research is supported and the wavelengths that our devices utilize are 810 and 980 nanometers. And people always ask, well, why do you use those? It's because they help solve this problem. They get past skin pretty well, they get deep, and they impact muscles and nerves really well. And we, there's been a lot of research to support that. So there's Companies out there, they go, ah, well, we got this wavelength and that wavelength, or we got six wavelengths. It's like, okay, great. <clears throat> the question is, even if you have a wavelength that can penetrate better, the question is, is it going to get absorbed? Because that's the other piece of it. Not only does it have to get there, it actually has to have the interaction with these receptors to make something happen. So right. some of these wavelengths that can penetrate a little bit better that have, are starting to evolve, they haven't demonstrated that they necessarily get absorbed real well. So <clears throat> okay. just be aware of that when they start talking about this topic. Um, and the last piece is that power that we were talking about earlier. If you can just think in terms of this concept of therapeutic depth, which means the brighter the light is you put on the surface of the skin, the more photons you're going to put into the tissue. So if you're in a dark room and you had a five watt light bulb on your flashlight versus say a, a mag light that had 20 watts of power, right? A big bright LED. That's exactly what the power game is with the laser. The brighter it is, the higher power it makes it easier to get light deeper. So <clears throat> this slide I just put up for those of you that can't see it, it's basically just showing a red light laser, 630 nanometers with a half a watt of power, basically shining into a, a medium. And what it shows is that there's a really bright circle of intense light that's just a maybe a half a centimeter of depth. And when you look at the definition of depth of penetration, and I won't get into it because it's beyond the scope of this chat today, but basically it's a very small level in human tissue. It's like three to five millimeters, depending on the study you look at. So when people read that and they're doing a cursory check on this stuff, they go, well, wait a minute, laser depth of penetration, as deep as it can get is three or four millimeters. Like how's that going to help, you know, a sciatic nerve or help a piriformis that's multiple centimeters deep? And you're thinking, right? But you just have to understand that that's a very specific scientific term and it has a very defined thing when you when you start looking at it. But this concept of therapeutic depth is basically saying past that definition of what depth of penetration is, there's still more light that is going into the tissue. And that's what this slide shows. That cloud of light that goes beyond that really bright center, those are still photons 
Those are still wavelengths that the cells can absorb. <clears throat> you just have to think that that's a, the concentration of that is a lot less. So you have to put a lot on the surface to get that sort of cloud of light below to be significant enough that it's going to impact change. Right. So that's in a nutshell, as far as getting to depth, why having higher power helps a lot because you can put this bright light on there and that cloud will basically be larger and brighter. And it means that you'll have to spend less time to make an impact at those deeper tissues. So yeah. Uh, and for, I, I, for those of you who are who are just listening to this but want to look at it, I'll put the link to the YouTube channel on here so that um, if you want to go take a look at some of these pictures, it's just really going to – they're very descriptive and, and will really show you what we're talking about today and uh, will be helpful. So be sure to I, check that out. This slide, the reason why I like using it is I gave a lecture at Life University a few years ago uh, for their continuing education event there for the chiropractic folks that came from there. And I put this slide up and we had just talked about depth of penetration and therapeutic depth. And we spent 40 minutes talking about this slide. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's just, it, it sparked off so many things. And there are so many sort of misconceptions that had been thrown out there from different vendors and what have you. And we were sort of unpacking stuff. And uh, I was just like, wow, this is a better slide than I thought. And yeah. I try to use it whenever I can on this topic because it obviously helps paint that picture. So sure, uh, hopefully absolutely. if you guys can come to the YouTube channel and check it out, it'll help with that. Yep. Um, now, do you have any other? Okay, so um, what I'd like to ask at this point is, and everybody's thinking this, does insurance cover laser therapy? That's a good question. And it's probably one of the reasons where adoption in the U.S. has been slow with this as generally we kind of as therapists perform like uh you know ostriches with our heads in the sand if we don't get reimbursed for it then it must not work and we don't use it because it's not convenient to bill for it and get it paid for so uh insurance companies generally aren't looking for ways to pay therapists more they're doing quite the opposite they're looking for ways to pay us less and less and less and so they don't really want to open up the gates <clears throat> to another thing that they have to pay for like laser so um Generally, it's not. There are some examples across the country uh, in the work comp space where it is recognized. Um, and there are some codes. So there's codes that could be utilized uh, for that. But generally, you can submit them and then they're going to come back and say, hey, we don't recognize laser. So no, we're not going to pay for it. And when you get that note, we look at that as an opportunity as a win for cash services, because then you can say, OK, your insurance doesn't cover this, even though we're in a network with them. They don't even recognize it. So therefore, we're offering this service outside of that scope. And if you want to add it, you can at this cost. So the national average is roughly about a $50 fee for treatment. It changes a little bit depending on where you live, but that's the average. Um, and people, when I tell them that, go, oh my gosh, I can't even get my people to make a copay. How are they going to spend an extra $50? It's really about explaining it to them, maybe demonstrating it here. Let me show you how this feels and how it works. And then getting that patient to understand it, to buy it in, have them see the results of it. And then all of a sudden they put that math together about, wow, I feel better. I'm probably going to sleep better tonight because of that. Or I'm going to get my arm moving better. I'm going to get back to my golf course sooner. Or I'm going to be able to start walking with my grandchild faster. And they start putting the dots together to make, make, make their goals happen quicker. And you'd be shocked. The number of people that go, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. You know, So it's just a matter of you have to have enough information as the therapist to explain it to people and let them know how the thing works. Um you can't just go, hey, we got this laser and I think it might help you want to try it. 
like that won't cut it. <clears throat> you have to have at least a minute or so of pitch to say, hey, this is how it works. Here's why I think it's going to help your problem. Let me show you how it works. And then have all those dots get connected. And then after that, you know, if you say, is this something you want to add? That's when they'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah that this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So there's and, a, there's a bit I, of a I've recipe to it. Time and time again, you know, uh, we're, we're having this big push away from modalities from insurance companies. Number one are, are saying, you know, uh, we don't want to reverse reimburse for any modalities anymore. They stopped reimbursing for orthotics. Now, I started building orthotics, making orthotics for patients about 15 years ago. And, you know, most insurances do not cover orthotics. Patients come in with a serious foot problem and, um, you know, we put a pair of orthotics on it. They pay cash for it. They leave. They come back in a couple of weeks and say, this is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I got my life back. I'm walking better. I'm more functional. I'm more active. And then for the next you know, 10 years, 15 years, I've been seeing these people come back every two, three years. I'd like a new pair, I'd like a new pair. This is my place for therapy. It really has, you know, its place, although you can't get reimbursed for it. I mean, I had two patients recently who had very difficult tendon issues of the foot. And we know that we're going toward loading programs um, with, you know, isometrics, light eccentrics, proper shoe wear, orthotics, and all that stuff. And we put them through this program. And I hit a brick wall with two of my patients. And I don't usually, but I did with these folks. And they just were not getting better. And I said, all right, we're pulling out iontophoresis with dexamethasone sodium phosphate. We put it on them. And it was the only thing that we had done differently. Both patients came back the next time, said, I am 50% better. And that is the only thing that we did different. So I want more of it. And so, you know, um, and we're doing the same thing with RPW. We, we got an RPW machine. We know insurance doesn't cover it. We have people who are, you know, chomping at the bit and knocking at the door to pay for it now because we've, we've utilized it as an adjunct to some of our therapy. And some folks just tried it alone and they had significant improvements. So, yeah, there are a lot of modalities out there that can be very helpful. Should it be the only tool that you use? Absolutely not, because, you know, ultimately our goal is function, less pain, and uh, getting back to doing what you were doing before. And uh, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's difficult because getting into the modality market and trying to get insurance to cover it is near impossible now just because insurances are already against us. doesn't matter what we are using. Um but I think it can be a, a great tool and uh, definitely something to explore. I, I think it's also worth mentioning, you know, on a couple points is the number of authorized visits are not expanding. They're contracting. So we're really getting put under the pump to get results with less service and in less time. So with that being said, unfortunately, especially younger therapists, they, they, some programs, I think, you know, come at it from an angle of like, you're either a manual person or you're a modality person. And that is totally the wrong lens to look at this type of problem. It's really about what makes sense, what gets results, what helps move things forward. And I think what you find after you've pushed around on thousands of patients like Paul and I have over the years is that, you know, I had a teacher once told me, hey, I'll beg, steal and borrow for anything that works. And, you know, he was talking about placebo at the time saying, Hey, if the patient buys into what this is and it helps them feel better and it gets them moving. Right. And placebo is a whole other topic, but his point was don't poo poo something, you know, that the patient believes in that moves the needle because everything that moves the needle is a big help to what we're trying to do. So for something like laser, where there's plenty of foundational science to say it helps 
to just discount it because it doesn't get paid for, or I don't believe in modalities, which our research shows there's about a 16% segment of, of PT out there that is in that category. I don't believe in modalities, so I don't use them. You know, I'd recommend don't be part of that boat because that little clan, that 16%, they're missing it as far as the bigger picture on, you know, how the patients view things and their value, you know, when they come in. The other piece I would bring up is that, you know, remote monitoring, you know, there's some money that's starting to get thrown at that for Medicare. You know, if you do it right, you might be able to make about 160 bucks a month per patient on doing that if you do all the right things. But stop and think about why that's happening. You know, they're not doing that as a favor to the PT world or to say, oh, we're doing this because we want you to make an extra $160 for each patient you see. They're doing it because eventually where that's going to point is now that you can do that and you've proven you can do that really well, now we're going to authorize less for the clinic. And that's just my guess. But, you know, being around long enough, I can almost see it coming, right? Absolutely. And to understand that and that this remote monitoring and remote treatment and what have you, it's going to, rec- it's going to start to change this interaction we have with our patients. So they are going to come in for probably less time. They won't, they don't want to be there as long. You might have to do a, an abbreviated treatment or what have you. And these types of tools that can help change how they feel, like Paul brings up the foot patient that has plantar fasciitis. All they want is to be able to get out of bed in the morning and not have excruciating pain when they load their feet. So if you have a tool, whether it's Iono or Shockwave or laser or whatever it is that your little magic hands can't do, and it makes them start to see change in some of these problems that like a chronic tendinopathy, like a plantar fasciitis, we all know that could take months to resolve, right? Even with the best plan of care. And some of this technology that we're talking about, you can start changing their pain complaints in days. So just imagine from a compliance standpoint, even if you're the best manual therapist and you got the best exercise prescriptions on the planet, you're probably not going to move the needle on a plantar fasciitis patient for weeks, just to the nature of how it, how it heals, right? So if you could add a, a bullet in your gun that could allow pain to get impacted in a meaningful way where they come back in a couple of days and go, wow, like Paul's patient, I'm 50% better after you did that one eye onto thing. I want it again. That's the type of thing that these technologies and this research does. And like we pointed out at the top of the show, there's 10,000 studies out there on laser. Like it's obviously doing something that people would not continuing to be looking at it. And the body of research is growing in a whole bunch of different areas. So it's not like it's, oh, it's had its heyday and it's dropping. No, it's just kind of getting figured out. So uh, just because, you know, the initial topic we talked about where you're not getting reimbursed for this. You know, don't take that as it's ineffective because that's definitely a, a confluence that's not true. Yeah, and I and I think if we look at the safety, you know, when you're when you're adding a treatment to a patient, if you can do it safely um, and it's and it's not going to harm them, uh, then then you can utilize it. You know, in the appropriate uh, in the appropriate setting. And so I think that. Um, you know, with that being said, boy, we've gone through a lot of stuff today. Um, and uh, Mark, is there anything else you want to throw out there before we get done today? No, I really appreciate the opportunity just to share some of these thoughts. Um, it's always great, hopefully, to reach a few new people to to get them around the concept of what, you know, this technology can do. Yep. Um, I'll just put my contact information on the screen. Uh, if you want to get any information about a laser and a demo or anything for your facility, uh, you can call our number at 877-627-3858 uh, and you'll get in touch directly with somebody that can set that up for you. Um, if you want to get some more information on laser and how it works and some different webinars I've done and 
you know, different treatment videos, you can go to lightforcemedical.com and check that out under the resources tab. Got all sorts of fun stuff in there that you can check out. You'll be a pro uh, after you watch two or three of these things. But um, yeah, if, if you, social media also put those up there in case you want to follow us uh, to, to stay abreast of what we're doing and how we're doing it, uh, you can do that. But um, yeah, look forward to hearing from you guys and any way we can help as far as getting introduced to this, be happy to do it. Yeah, and I'm going to add those links into the show notes uh, of today's podcast. So if you want to check those out, that'd be great. Mark, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and helping me out with this and educating me and, and all of my listeners, uh, more importantly. And, um, you know, I just, uh, again, can't thank you enough. No, no problem. Uh, happy to do it, Paul. And uh, hopefully we can talk about maybe RPW or something fun, you know, down the road and uh, yeah. dive into that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and uh, I really would appreciate it if you could give us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts uh, and give us a rating on any of your podcast platforms. Uh, that would be great. It just helps us make our show better. And, you know, even if it's a, a, a negative rating or review, that's quite all right. If you have a question or concern, be sure to send it to me. I'll keep the uh, the link in the show notes. Um, feel free to contact me anytime. And uh, again, as always, I hope you had a great day and um, take care. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.